otherwise on SAFM. Otherwise, it is here on SAFM Talking Women and Team Today. I'm Nancy Richards and uh, Luanda Mafiana and Hazel Macuzzini on the other side of the glass. Well, later on, what have we got on the show today? Later on, we're going to be getting a bit of a breakdown of what was discussed at the University of the Free State last week in a dialogue called simply Rape and the State. We'll be chatting to postdoctoral fellow Dr. Sabine Hirschhauer. And just also on research, we're going to be talking in a minute to Feroz Mulaji on her domestic workers' research project aimed at empowering and recognising the role of the domestic workers in the South African economy. It's research that's been going on for four years, but uh, possibly raises more questions than answers, but we'll get stuck into that in just a minute. And also on domestic workers, before we do any of that, we're just going to be hearing the name of the domestic worker of the year from a champion of the profession, Cecilia Makola. And if you'd like to share at any stage, you're most welcome. It's 0892102010. is the number to call. And if you want to pop us a mail, we're at otherwise at safm.co.za. What's news? Well, as I say, we're going to be hearing about a dialogue called Rape and the State later in the show, sexual violence and its political narrative. And the case of the rape accusation by a 26-year-old employee of Kusatu General Secretary Zuelin Zimavavi, well, as you hear, not only uh, continues to unfold, but is uh, underway as we, as we speak. And it's clear that while rape can be a political issue, it can also be very, very personal and very damaging to everyone. And just whilst we're going to be talking about the rights and wrongs of domestic workers later, Spare a thought for the nursing profession, which according to a study done by the head of Vitz Centre for Public Health, Letitia Rispel, apparently it's in crisis, with a third of nurses, not exclusively but largely female, I have to say, admitting that they moonlight, and half of them saying that they feel exhausted at work. And following the Minister of Social Development, Batabile Tlamini's recent trip to Brazil and the repatriation of a number of the, the babies of the women inmates there, it seems that there are more than 330 South African women drug mules in South American prisons. But of concern, she says, is the likelihood that this number may increase during the Brazilian World Cup next year. She says drug trafficking has a strong gender dimension due to women's economic vulnerability. Just on the subject of drugs and women, how ironic, how unfortunate, should I say, is it that a drug called MDMA, said to be really just a purified version of ecstasy, has been nicknamed Molly. Just something to know that it happens to be your name as well, I guess, hey. And just on other news that I thought I would like uh, to share with you on this particular day, that this is my last week here at Otherwise. In fact, Wednesday will be my last day. It's the end of the month. And I'd also like to tell you that taking over in this very hot seat will be no less a radio voice than Shadow Twala. She and I are going to be sharing the mic on Wednesday in a sort of hello, goodbye show. So if you'd like to join us then, you will be so welcome. But right now it's otherwise. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Steve Kikana. You're listening to SAFM, South Africa's South Africa news, and news and information leader. Otherwise, on SAFM. Yes, it is. Otherwise, here on SAFM Talking Women. Well, in a minute on the show, we're going to be hearing a little bit about a domestic workers' research project. I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. But first, we have on the line our friend Cecilia Makola. She's of My Claim Mate. And we had her on the show just last week, you might remember, inviting nominations for the title of Domestic Worker of the Year. Well, the event took place over the weekend, and I'm hoping it was a wonderful, glittering event. But we've got uh, Cecilia on the line to tell us all and to tell us, above all, the name of the winner. Hi, Cecilia. Hi, Nancy. Thank you. Was it a wonderful, wonderful occasion? 
It was a wonderful occasion, Nancy, and what's great is that the domestic workers and the employers that attended the award really appreciated um, having a platform where the employers are able to actually recognize the value that their employees bring to their lives and their families. So we're very happy that we were able to meet our objectives with the event and the award. Yes, I'm very nice that you created that platform because, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of of appreciation both ways, but it doesn't always get recognized and sort of celebrated and supported. So how many, in the end, how many nominations did you get? Um, We got uh, um, just a little over 100 nominations, and then we had the difficult task of having to... um, whittle it down to six finalists, of which um, one had to be chosen as our winner. A hundred nominations. I'm sure that we said when you and I were speaking the other day that there are apparently something like a million domestic workers in South Africa, only a hundred nominations. Maybe next year and the year following will be there will be many, many more. So just tell us a little bit about the nominations before we get the drum roll and the name of the winner. Tell us a little bit about the nominations. What what were people saying? Well, Nancy, people were really talking about um, the relationship that they have between themselves as the employer and also their employee. They also spoke about um, the life situation of their domestic worker um, and how the domestic worker does they work, how it relates to the family and the children. Yes, so it's a lot to do probably less about her work and more about how she fits in, which is so much the nature of the domestic worker is that uh, he or she is, is so very much part of the family. So it's not like a, a defined job description, is it? Um, yes, the, that is what we found with the nomination. But we also found um, that the employer actually does, uh, did mention how they try to regulate their relationship so that there is some kind of formality in their relationship. But obviously within the nominations, you could tell how that relationship goes beyond the borders of just employer and and employee and how they relate on a personal level with each other. Yes, very much a very, very sort of crucial aspect there. So I don't think we can wait any longer. You have to tell us who the name of the, the, the winner was. Well, the winner was um, Kimetri Leah Mareni, and yeah. she supposed to be known as Leah. And the motivation that came through from the employer was exactly the kind of person that we're looking for to actually help us as an ambassador of their awards going forward on how people need to relate between themselves and their employees, how they should... Um, relate to their job um, because with the nomination that we got about Leah, um, it is clear that she really believes that this job is a calling for her. Mm. She treats it like any um, professional would. Um, she comes into the home and she diligently works every day. She makes sure that the employer is with the work she has done. She makes sure that the, the children have done their homework. She disciplines the children when the, when the 
understand when the mother and the father are not there and she reports back to the employer to say, in your absence, these are the things that happened. Um, what was also um, really important for the employer was that she takes such care and responsibility in looking after the home such that um, companies like Telcom and ADT well, she does not open for anybody unless the employer has specified that, listen, there is such and such a person coming through and this is what they will do. Um, and she also is a, a, an avid reader. She likes to be to keep abreast with what is happening. And also in terms of technology, she likes to keep abreast with, you know, what is happening outside in terms of technology so that she is also able to, to make things easier for her employer and also the way that she, she works, but also in her own personal life in, in general. And this is somebody who is 58 years old. She'd never um, finished matric, and she's taught herself how to read and write and also um, uh, keep abreast with technology and what is happening with regards to technology. And she also has a really great... Um, personal story of resilience and how um, she doesn't bring her personal issues into the work relationship and how she actually communicates any challenges she has in her personal life with her employer so that they are able to find solutions that, that fit both of them. I mean, a, a really great example that the employer Stated was that at a time when she was going to court for um, domestic violence issues and maintenance claims, she even got the court um, clerk to call the employer and actually validate that she was there for her court date. And then she called the employer to say, in my absence, is everything still okay? Is everything mm. still in order? So it's somebody that takes her job really seriously. She... she um, Treats herself as a professional. Whoa, that is that that really is uh, one heck of a testimony, I have to say. And you think to yourself, uh, you know, and I suppose I'm just guilty of sort of even thinking about stereotyping here. I'm thinking somebody of that caliber, who of such sort of personal excellence, she should she could really be employed in anywhere, and people would really love to have her. The fact that she's a domestic worker, the fact that she has no matric, means that she's maybe not able to to go to another sort of profession. That's, Am that's I being true, cruel? Nancy. And, and, and that's why um, I really feel that it's important that with all the other stakeholders in the industry, we need to get together and really um, grow and develop this industry because it, could, it has great potential to become feeders into other industries where people can then also grow further. Yes, except that one doesn't want to sort of, you know, I, what I liked right at the beginning where you said that Leah treats it very, treats her job very much as a professional and one would like to think mm. that she feels sufficiently proud of her job to remain there, you know, because it, it, yeah. it's no good just sort of getting, growing everybody at that level and then moving them on because if we're going to recognize it as a proper profession, um, it, it needs to, it needs to be recognized as such. Has she been there very long and has there been right at the beginning um, did she and her employer uh, do a lot of sort of discussion, dis discuss the role and what was required? Um, she's been in the industry for 30 years, and with her current employer, she's been with them for five years. And she, at the time, she started out with this current employer 
on a one-day basis, then it grew to two days, and then it grew to full-time employment because of her dedication to her work and how she treats her work. And she was also working for um, two employers at the time. And um, when the current employer offered her um, uh, full-time employment, she went to the other employer and told them that, you know what, I would prefer to stay with this employer. Um, so the employer was really appreciative also of the loyalty that she gave to, to them and her family. Well, you better not tell us where she is because she's going to get headhunted. <laughs> she sounds absolutely wonderful. I, I think you did tell me, Cecilia, but tell me again, what will Leah now win as a result of being Domestic Worker of the Year? She's going to become an ambassador and what more? Um, she she's won a trophy, um, and she's also won a stay at the Sheraton Hotel that the Sheraton Hotel sponsored. She's also won a five-day um, training, domestic service training course that is sponsored by Made for You, and that is a really great training because they go over and above just the issues of cleaning and cooking, and they also talk about how do you regulate a, a better relationship between yourself and your employer? How do you communicate better between yourself and the employer? Yeah. And she also won energy-efficient um, appliances to the value of 20,000 rand, courtesy of Operation Kanisa. And she also won a fully paid 12-month medical aid membership that was sponsored by Domestic Care. You know, you talk about her having won the five-day training course. It sounds like she should be running the training course now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so well, really well, the, the, the interesting know. thing is that we um, got people at the awards that were also talking about how do we um, transfer skills from the experienced domestic workers to the newcomers in the industry. Yeah. Um, because those people that have got this extensive experience of 30 years, like Leah, needs to be able to transfer that experience over and we'll look at opportunities that we can be able yeah. to create where she can also share information with other domestic workers and especially those that are starting in the industry. Well, well done you for highlighting this. I think it's absolutely super. Now, if anybody would like to know a little bit more, maybe they'd like to start uh, thinking about nominations for next year, just give me your email address again or, or your website. I forget which it was. Um, they can go to www. Yeah domesticworkersday.co.za oh, right. and we have got a contact us page that has all of our information. Brilliant. Lovely. Cecilia, thank you so much, Cecilia Makola. And uh, if you see Leah again, tell her well done her. Absolutely fabulous. Leah Morena, she's thank Domestic you. Worker of the Year. You're listening to Otherwise. We're going to stay with domestic workers in just a minute, so stay tuned. Do you want to learn how to pitch your business idea effectively? Do you want to take your existing business to the next level? Engine Pitch and Polish in association with SAFM is setting the stage for entrepreneurs. If you believe in your business idea and would like some guidance, then we want you to attend our inspiring workshop where you will receive expert training and tips. This free workshop is coming to a town near you. For more info, SMS P-I-T-C-H, your name and city, to 45982. Register online at pitchandpolish.com or phone 011-566-2000. SMS costs 150. T's and apply. Does selling excite you and make your heart beat faster? Do you thrive in an environment where you close deals? And SABC is looking for a person of your calibre to fill the vacancy of an account executive in the Free State and Northern Cape Business Development. The position is mainly responsible for generating and maximising sales revenue, as well as meeting monthly and annual sales targets. 
Applicants must have a relevant tertiary qualification in sales and marketing, IMM or AAA, and a minimum of five years in sales, marketing or advertising industry. Kindly send your application, including a comprehensive CV, to Crystalline Simpson at simpsoncp at sabc.co.za. Closing date, 2nd of August 2013. Otherwise, on SAFM. Well, there you go. Otherwise, it is here on SAFM. I'm still reeling from the wonderment of Leah Moreno. And uh, hopefully, maybe, perhaps we'll try and get her on the show at some stage because it really does sound... Uh, Sounds like she's done a good job and, and wonderful that she and her employer, whose name I didn't get foolishly, um, had done such a good job on responding to one another because, you know, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? And that's really, really super. Well, having spoken a little bit about domestic workers, Domestic Workers Research Project, in the studio with me I have Farouz Mulaji. She's a coordinator of the Social Law Project at the Faculty of Law at UWC, and she's heading the research for the Domestic Workers Research Project, and uh, here she is to tell us all about it. Hi, Farouz. Hi, Vin. It was lovely to see your face when you were listening to that story about Leanne and just how unbelievably uh, successful she's been in doing what she's doing. Your uh, research project has been going since 2009. Why? What is it that you're researching, trying to do exactly? Look, I think when we started out the... Well, and that still is the focus today, um, we're looking at the impact of legislation on the lives of domestic workers. Um, As I've said previously, um, we've got among the best laws in the country. In fact... Our laws are so good that they were actually the benchmark for international labour standards for domestic workers at the ILO in 2011. So we ask ourselves, I mean, if if the laws are so good, why are they not translating into better conditions? So I think that's, that's essentially what, what the research is attempting to do. So we've looked at it from all angles. We've looked at it in terms of the regulations. What are the regulations? Is there a problem with the regulations? Are they falling short? Um, what kind of social security benefits are there for domestic workers? Um, what are the levels of compliance and enforcement? Um, and you know, all those questions, depending on who you speak to, you'd get different responses from different quarters. And I think, as Cecilia Makula has said, it's a sector which is growing, which is emerging, and all stakeholders in the sector have a very important role to play. Yes, it's growing, it's emerging, and it just really needs to be professionalised, as we've just heard. So in your view, the biggest problem is what? We've got, we've got the legislation, it's not transferring, it's not being, they're not being implemented. What's the biggest problem? I think one of the problems is that both domestic workers and employers, it's a new kind of relationship that's emerging, and I think many of the problems stem from that. It's hard for employers of domestic workers to see themselves as employers. Many of them work and, you know, it's just not been the kind of practice we've seen, not only in this country but throughout the world, um, where your domestic worker is considered to be an employee and your home 
your private home is considered to be a work site. I think that's a little bit of a difficult mind shift for employers and domestic workers themselves to make. So, you know, the, the laws came into effect in 2002, specific laws for domestic workers. That came into effect in 2002. It's like, what, 11 years later? Mm. And I think people are still struggling to understand that. So... How is that reflected? I mean, in your research, presumably you've spoken to both domestic workers and the employees. What are they saying? Look, we've spoken mostly... I must admit that the research hasn't really gone into the realm of employers. We've not spent much time with employers except for a survey that was conducted in 2010. So what have you heard from the domestic workers? The domestic workers are afraid. They're afraid to organize. They, I think their precarious position puts them in a difficult situation. You know, they've not been in this kind of relationship with the employers and they're afraid to discuss the very idea of organizing with the employers. When you say organizing, what do you mean? Organizing themselves, you know, as a collective, as a collective. Mobilizing themselves. Mobilizing Mm. themselves. I think that is still something which domestic workers are grappling with. Our survey conducted in 2010 showed quite a different response, though. Um, When you talk to workers, which, as we did, With the survey, um, most of them were not aware that there were any organizations for domestic workers, and um, they didn't seem to be afraid um, of the vulnerable position as workers in the home. But, you know, a few Uh, years ago... So are they less afraid now than they were? No. Look, I mean, I think it's it's quite contradictory. Um, And again, it depends on who you talk to. Mm. I think different studies have been conducted and people find different ways of mobilizing, organizing and so forth. But I mean, you know, our our research is very much from the perspective of the law and what rights domestic workers have. And so for us, it's important to see how domestic workers are able to enjoy those rights and benefits afforded by the law. So, with regard to, you know, just sort of basic, um, with basic rights, I suppose, um, you know, whether it's the Department of Labor, who, we, we, we see the unemployment insurance benefit. We think that should be a very useful tool for the country to use as a compliance measure. But at the moment, there seems to be such difficulty with the department itself to use that information. Um, You know, they've been very open to working with us, sharing that information, but somehow there's a problem with the data they're using. Maybe we can come up with some solutions. I can see, I know you said right at the beginning that there are more questions than answers, perhaps, but maybe we can identify some of the questions that could be answered and maybe 
individuals who have got answers for them. So stay with us, um, Farooz, if you don't mind. I'm going to take, quickly going to take the news headlines. Farooz Mulaji, she is with the uh, Faculty of Law at UWC, and she's also heading the research on the Domestic Work Research Project. And if you would like to share your thoughts on this, you can give us a call. It's 0892 10 2010, 0892 10 2010. But it is 1.30. It's time for the news headlines with Thanks very much, Utsili. But right now, here on Otherwise, we're talking about the Domestic Workers Research Project that's happening at UWC. Uh, Farouz Mulaji is heading that research that, as I said, um, seems to have created more questions than answers. But the, what is the real problem here, Farouz? Is it that, you know, you say that the, the workers themselves are afraid to organise or mobilise themselves, but do they know what their rights are right at the get-go here? Nancy, I think that's part of the problem. I think many workers don't actually know what their rights are. I mean, their rights start with a contract, don't they? Yes. Because if you've got a contract in place already, you've got something to work with. Without one, it's a bit furry. So I think, you know, many domestic workers don't actually understand their rights. And I think that's part of the problem. And, And again, I think it's important for all role players, government, employers, and those workers who understand things a little better to inform and raise awareness. I think that's a really big problem. There needs to be a lot more awareness raising about, you know, just basic things like the condition of employment, leave, all the basic Mm -hmm. rights that workers have in any job. I think that's now been afforded to domestic workers as well. So it's the role of the employer to inform the employee of their rights. Yes, but I think, you know, in all fairness, not all employers are um, aware of the changes that have taken place either and and their changed role as employers. I think that also needs to be elevated somewhat and I think the Department of Labour has a very critical role to play in terms of informing employers of their duties as employers Looking at it from the worst possible side, you know, maybe employers don't know, don't want to know, uh, because there are issues, you know, once you've got contracts in place and you talk about the Department of Labour and everyone goes, you know, labour laws and we can't do this and we can't do that, and suddenly it it changes this very delicate, um, a potentially very wonderful relationship that employers and domestic workers have. But it just puts it on another footing and maybe people are just a little concerned about that. I think so. I mean, look... There are are good relationships and there are also very bad relationships. And I do think that, you know, in this country we do have a difficult past and the domestic work relationship emerges out of that difficult past. Well, I tell you who we have on the line. We have Lindiwe, who is the founder of Made For You, who I think are the, uh, the people who are going to be giving Leah Morena um, a five-day training course. And let's see what she has to say. Hi, Lindiwe. Hi, how are you? Well, well, thank you. What's your okay. take on What's your take on this? What Ferris is saying? You know what? Um, 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 what my issue would be that I mean, we we have we house we house uh, a database of over five thousand to ten thousand unemployed domestic workers, women who have been domestic workers who want to be domestic workers. 
you know, who are looking for jobs in that sector, and that's what we do. And we have placed over a thousand domestic workers, which we interact with on a daily basis. And the, the amazing thing that I'm hearing is that they're not conscious of unions and rights and so forth. And I was, I mean, personally, I, we get so shocked because they're the ones that tell us, Lindy, where I want a, a contract, I want to be covered for, for UIF, I want to be covered for this and that. You know, and uh, because of uh, the interaction that we have with them on a daily basis and continuously touching base with the domestic workers, and because domestic workers is our language and that's what we do, uh, we ask. And, and for us, the asking and the researching is just for us to build a better service. And uh, so far we find out from most of them that they want provident funds and they want medical mm -hmm. aid. And of course, we're busy with designing that. Uh, there are companies that are currently doing that. It will be launched in November. And, you know, I think the research perhaps was based on old domestic workers or something like that. But the, the industry now has domestic workers that are quite uh, well-informed and, 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 and they know what they want and they know their rights. I mean, and you've got domestic workers that actually have taken their employers to CCMA. So if, if the research has come up with, with that uh, domestic workers are not well-informed, how then, if you get a lot of employers now, I'm, I'm sure you can get a couple of them calling you and telling you, they, you know, a domestic worker took me to CCMA. So that, that, comes, that makes you think that they are conscious and aware of the Domestic Workers Alliance Union. They are aware of your UIF. They are aware of the, the, Lind the COVID Lindy, and, Lindy, when, and when, other rights. Sorry, Lindy, when, when the, the women come to you, I mean, I'm thinking if they're savvy enough to join your organization, maybe they're savvy enough to know this. Do they, when they come to you, do they already know this, or do you offer information and education on that score? Most of them do know this. Okay. We will, uh, we, when we do the workshops and it's part of the training that we continuously do with domestic workers, we do uh, teach them financial literacy about what is Provident Fund, what is UIF, what is whatever, you know, in terms of finances, we do teach them that. But most of them do know it. And I'm not only talking about 30-year-olds, even 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds, uh, local and foreigners. I mean, we've got Lesotho ladies and Zim ladies who say, listen, I want to register. I want you guys to help me uh, source employment for me, but I need to be covered. I'm, for, I'm a foreigner. If I die yeah. this fight, what's going to happen? You know, and that is the caliber that, you know, we, we are dealing with. And it's, it's from as young as 19 to as old as 55, 60. I'm going to get uh, Ferus to, to respond to you in just a minute, but what worries me most of all, just looking at your, uh, your statistics there, you've placed 1,000, but you've got 5,000 unemployed domestic workers on your desk. Yes, yes. That's the real, real worry, that uh, there are just not enough jobs, no matter how well qualified or not well qualified you are. You ha don't have an opportunity to put your potential into, or realise your potential, because you can't get the job in the first place. Lindy, we're going to, you know, really get you back again another day. Well, hopefully Shadow will get you back another day um, okay. to come on and really talk about that. But before you go, let's, uh, Farouz, do you want to just respond to what Lindy was saying? Yes, no, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear, you know, that the workers coming to Lindiwe's outfit are well informed and I'm sure there are lots and lots of domestic workers who do know their rights. Um, but again, you know, we have in excess of 800,000 domestic workers in this country. And I think for us it's important that domestic workers, all domestic workers, become aware of those rights and are able to assert those rights. I think that's very important. And I think it's great the kind of work being done by organizations like Lindiwes 
continue to do the kind of work, to do the training and to continue to raise awareness. Awareness is what it's all about and hard work is what it's all about and uh, there's so much potential uh, out there. I think we just need to sort of get it all together. Well, hopefully we will get you all together. Lindy, just give us your website, if you will. Is it made for you? www.maidmade.co.za Fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, just just one more thing. I yeah. just wanted to say the Department of Labor, you know, with uh, the UIF division, has embarked on a on a campaign together with Made for You to be doing education around domestic work, conscientizing them of their rights. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So the, 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 there's something that has been done, and hopefully there'll be more. And I agree with with what is being said to say there is a huge number that needs to be reached out. So maybe perhaps you know. We need to be more visible and uh, uh, companies and, and government sectors that are doing campaigns regarding domestic work education need to be visible. Yeah, absolutely, for mm-hmm. sure. Thank mm-hmm. you very much, Lindue. And uh, Hazel, I'm sure, has taken your number, so we will, uh, well, I'm sure that they will soon get you back on the program to tell us a little bit more. Um, Feroz, if anybody would like to find out more about the research project and maybe input in some way, how can they do that? They can contact the Social Law Project. Yes. Yeah. Telephone number 021-959-3273 yeah. Yeah. or email slp yeah. at uwc.ac.za. Super. I'm going to repeat all of that. Feroz Mulaji, thank you very much. Very best of luck. And I think it's been a very useful exchange there. Thank um, you. Feroz is with the UWC, the Faculty of Law there, and the Domestic Worker Project, if you'd like to know more. SLP at uwc.ac.za, 021-959-3273. And if you'd like to find out more about Made For You, it's madeforyou.co.za. Miss any of that, get in touch with us, otherwise at safm.co.za. Are you up to date with the world of property? For all things property, what are your rights as a property owner and or purchaser? Are you a tenant or the landlord and you need advice? What is the value of your investment in commercial property in South Africa? What matters are of importance in discussing land ownership? Trust us to simplify and help you understand the detail in all things property. Join me, Dineo Mulomo, every week on Tuesday morning on Morning Talk at 10.30. Otherwise, on SAFM. Well, I guess we probably could have talked about domestic workers and issues around that for a very long time, but I'm sure it will happen again very soon right here on Otherwise. But next up, something that we also talk about quite a lot is rape. Rape and the State, well, that was the title of a dialogue and talk held last week at the University of the Free State. It was, uh, the talk itself was given by Dr. Sabine, uh, Sabina Hirschauer. She's a postdoctoral fellow affiliated with Trauma Forgiveness and Recon- Reconciliation Studies at UFS, and we have her on the line. Hi, Sabina. Yes, hello, good afternoon. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Um, a big topic here, but I think from what I understand that your research, which has been into this particular thing, was it's broken down into three, uh, three issues, what you call the securitization of rape, the intersection of rape and security, and why rape is not just a domestic matter. Can you just explain, firstly, the securitization of rape? Yeah, the uh, securitization of rape, this was really my initial um, research I did in the uh, United States, and I looked at... Uh, the conflict in Bosnia in the early 1990s, and then I looked at the uh, genocide in Rwanda, and I was really interested 
because I am a political scientist, my background is international politics, um, international relations. So I was interested at that intersection of rape and security that we look beyond rape just as a social matter, private matter, domestic matter. And then when we look at conflict, it's not just a byproduct of war. It is more than that. It is a security threat. And in my research, I uh, established that, that it is rape, in particular in, as utilized in Bosnia, utilized in Rwanda, was a security threat. And it was equally recognized as such by, for example, international institutions, by the UN Security Council, and by these uh, two tribunals, for example. A security threat to whom? To the country? To the state? To the country, but also to national security, regional security, and international security. And it was recognized as such. And so people, officers, generals, went to prison for either ordering rape as a weapon of war or actually um, participating mm -hmm. in, in such. I guess we tend to, certainly here on this program, we tend to sort of focus on the, on the victim or the survivor of rape and on the damage that's done there. But what you're saying is that it, it's doing damage to the country as a whole. Certainly it's doing damage to its, uh, right. its reputation, its morals, certainly. Yes, absolutely. It, it, does, it does something, as what I call as a, a political scientist, it does something to the political viability of a country. And this also brings me back to um, my research I'm doing here in South Africa because, again, I want to look beyond rape just being a social matter, a private matter, or a domestic matter. It is more, there is more to it. What is it that you're looking at here at home, here in South Africa? So I'm specifically, for example, looking at how has rape become a norm in this country? You know, and then also when we look at some, something what I call increasingly socially destructive and the, this, this increasing disturbing character of rape, when we look at baby rapes in the early 2000s, corrective lesbian rape, and now as recently, 2012 and, and this year, grandmother rape, mm. that again is pushing the boundaries of uh, rape as a norm. So there is, there's something else going on. There is more going on. And I'm not, I'm not the only scholar who is looking at the intersection of rape and politics. Some of my colleagues, they call it that this actually creates anxieties about the moral fitness of the new democracy here in South Africa. Yes, indeed. Well, we don't need to look any further than the daily paper right now. Um, you know, General Secretary of Kasati, Zolenzi Mavavi, is, is being accused of rape. Uh, uh, the worrying phrase that you use there, how has it become a norm? It almost feels like it's become a norm. It's certainly an everyday occurrence. What do you think it is in a very simple terms? Yeah, but I... Um Obviously, I did, I'm just in the initial phase, but I did already, I did a lot of research. And what I see here is we have the shaping of a political, what I call a political narrative of rape. How the political leadership, you know, is telling the story of rape and is dealing with that rape crisis 
in this country. And I see when I, when I look then at the question, what has created what I call this political narrative? It's the answer to me is kind of twofold. What we, have, what we see here is we have a political pushback of the women's emancipatory progress that was really accomplished during the struggle. And then it's also, secondly, it's like uh, almost a long-brewing uh, politically neoconservative response to the very ambitious and, 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 and progressive uh, South African constitution which obviously, you know, embraced all these uh, equalities across all social and cultural fault lines. Is it, did it brush, is it subconscious? Of, you know, uh, you talk about the um, political pushback of women's emancipation that, you know, that they'd achieved to date. Is it deliberate? I'm sorry? Is, is it deliberate? Uh, I, I mean, would I'm, almost, I mean, well, you could argue overtly or covertly so yeah it's almost if we look at uh you know you said the, the sunday paper or if we look at the political leadership and i also have to look at for example the zuma rape trial in 2006 and you know what kind of damage this does and did to you know just the political and social discourse about sexual violence and and rape in this country, and I, the implication, obviously, the trial was sensationalized, and I would, I would say, um, it was politically brushed aside. Uh, but it's really, to me, as a researcher, it carries and it carried and still carries a largely understated uh, moral significance to the discourse of sexual violence in this country. It's almost like a moral scar that sexual violence is not a priority, that it's insignificant, and it's not. It's politically incredibly significant. Yeah, I hear you. The research that you're doing in Kailicha at the Simalena Violence Center, Sexual Violence Center? Yes, I did already. I worked um, in uh, at the Simalena at the center in 2010, in the summer of 2010, and this is when I started some of my in initial research. Um, and, you know, I just remember, I mean, obviously we don't have to talk about the horrific um, incidences of how, how horrific rape is, mm. but just very symbolic, I, I had a night shift, and one of the victims, a woman on her way to work, she was waiting for a lift. She was actually a security guard, was raped in the Nelson Mandela uh, Park. And it's just what kind of symbolism that, you know, shows us. It, it's just, uh, and this needs to, address, needs to be addressed on the highest level, on the political level. And what I see is a lack of political commitment, a lack of political will. Is that where it starts? I mean, just briefly in the, in the last minute. Yes. What do you think needs to be done to swing the pendulum back so that we reduce well, our numbers? Yeah, the political leadership in this country needs to recognize the cost to this country of the threat crisis. There is, you know, it, 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 it's, it's significant to the political viability of this country. It's not just, a, as I say, domestic, private, social matter. 
It has, it has, it carries a political cost. It is a moral scar. If you expand consistently that norm, that it's a norm, baby rape is a norm, that uh, lesbian corrective rape is a norm, that leaders, political leaders, you know, you know, are involved in rape accusations, that this becomes a norm. This has a cost for this country. It certainly has a cost for the women of this country, and uh, I hear what you say beyond that. D Dr. Sabina Herschel, we're out of time, but thank you very much for sharing, yeah. albeit shortly, uh, briefly, um, what you had to say there, and I suspect that there's a lot more that you could be saying. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get to hear it again another day. Sure. Thank you. Thank you Take for care. having me. Thank you. Dr. Sabina Hirschhauer, she is uh, affiliated with the Forgiveness and Reconciliation Studies at the University of the Free State, where they had the discussion on rape and the state. Well, that's it for Otherwise today. Uh, thanks very much to the team, uh, Luanda Mafiana and Hazel Mikazeni. I'm Nancy Richards. Up next, it's time for uh, the children's program, Nolly Bali.